important cheerers. You're somebody who cheers when somebody does a great performance on Britain's Got Talent or The X Factor or whatever else it is. I should think in a, there's about five or six weeks, I think, till Meghan's wedding. I should think they'll be cheering in the streets uh, from a few thousand people as they watch her and Prince Harry go past. What is it that makes you cheer? Are you somebody who cheers out loud uh, you know, in any circumstances? Maybe not. I want to talk this evening about choosing to cheer. I want to talk about choosing to cheer. There are all kinds of things that um, we can pray for in this life, all kinds of things that God does sovereignly for us. You know, he promises to give us gifts of the Spirit, and, and we receive those by faith, uh, often when somebody's praying for us. God, God often heals, or God heals sovereignly. You know, many of us here have got testimonies of God healing sovereignly, intervening in a situation. We've seen, and many of us here have seen him provide miraculously, uh, we've had you know, a number of stories of that in our family over the recent months. There are often times when God breaks in and does something sovereignly and supernaturally. I can remember a number of years ago now, many years ago, and uh, I was, I'd been going through quite a challenging period in my life. I had very small children. I'm sure looking back on it, I was mildly depressed. I just found it really hard to connect with any kind of joy in my life and my heart at all. And uh, one evening... I came forward for prayer here, and uh, the Holy Spirit was ministering to my heart. Um, I ended up you know, being so overwhelmed by him, I fell down on the floor. I didn't quite know what God was doing, but the next morning, as I was pushing my pushchair down the Bath Road where we used to live you know, many, many years ago, I noticed that I felt like singing, and there was a skip in my step, and I felt completely different, and I was shocked by how different... Uh, I felt after this period of months where I'd struggled to feel any kind of joy at all. And I remembered that, oh, I went forward for prayer last night. And God did something really powerful in my heart and my life, sovereignly, like that. And we all know that it so often doesn't happen like that. But sometimes God intervenes and breaks a heavy yoke or breaks off oppression. And overnight, he turns things around. But then there are other kind of things that we end up needing to grow in our hearts or our lives. And they only grow, those, those kind of things only grow through us making certain choices. You know, one choice at a time, one step at a time. And we grow things by making tough choices. I'm reliably informed by um, the boys in my family that what happens in a gym is that every time you lift weights, your muscles grow and they get stronger. Personally, I have a bit of an, an, an allergy to gyms. But that, that is how our strength grows, isn't it? By, by exercising muscles with something a little bit tough to grow the strength in that muscle. And there are all kinds of things in our hearts and in our minds that God grows in us through us making difficult and sometimes challenging choices. That's how some of those things grow. And that's what I want to talk about this evening, the choice, uh, the choice to cheer, the choice to cheer. So let's um, open the Bible. I think the passage is going to come up on the screen. We're going to read from Luke 19, the classic Palm Sunday passage, verses 29 to 44. Um, here it is. So this is the story of Jesus. It's Sunday, he's crucified on the Friday. It's kind of six days before he ends up, as it were, ending his earthly life here. And this is Luke's account. It's the most comprehensive account of the story of him entering um, Jerusalem. So Luke says this, As he approached Bethpage and Bethany on the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. 
and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, surprise, surprise, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They won't leave, you, they won't leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. So a very familiar story. Uh, it's a story that we read each year uh, at this time of year in our celebrations together. Very familiar story. And just let's kind of cast our minds back. But because it's familiar, it's quite good to sort of re-engage with it again. And imagine what a kind of carnival atmosphere there must have been as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his donkey. The feel-good factor was in the air big time. It was, you know, it was party time. Uh, I reckon if it was happening in the 21st century, Jesus wouldn't have been on a donkey. He'd probably have been on the top of a bus or in some car and Coldplay would have been playing and there would have been people on rooftops cheering and, uh, you know, it was a really, really buzzing time. And, uh, and yet the extraordinary thing is in the, you know, here we have this massive celebration going on and yet five days later, as Jesus was approaching his crucifixion, everything had changed. Life had been turned upside down, and in a matter of moments, nobody was cheering. Nobody was excited. Nobody was on the rooftops. Nobody was cheering. One minute on Palm Sunday, he was the good news. Five days later, he was old news. An incredibly dramatic turnaround of events in the space of a few days. What happened? What changed between this carnival, festival, excited, sort of, you know, jubilation, as it were, that if it was going on today, would have, you know, we'd have spent months planning for in, our, uh, you know, in a local town or whatever. What had changed? What had changed? Well, it wasn't Jesus. Just have a look at verse 37, a little phrase in the passage that we've just read. Luke is very specific. In this account of the gospel, Luke draws our attention to the fact as to why the people were cheering as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. He includes a small but significant detail here. You know, there was a reason why, as he was writing this story, he thought, do you know what? I'm going to put that in this account. And he says this in verse 37. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices because of all 
the miracles that they'd seen. They were praising God. <coughs> Excuse me. Did you turn it up, not down? They were praising God because of the miracles that they'd seen. They'd watched him, hadn't they? They'd watched him healing all kinds of diseases. They'd watched him call this dead man out of a cave. They'd watched him walk on water. They'd watched him feed thousands, 5,000 families with a few bits of bread and some loaves of fishes. They'd watched him cast demons out of people that you know, everybody had lost hope about. There was masses and masses to cheer about. There was so much to cheer about. It must have been, you know, can you imagine? I love doing this. I don't know if you do this when you read the Gospels. Imagining what it must have been like to be a member of the crowd, to be around Jesus when he was doing his stuff. Who wouldn't cheer somebody that had been doing that kind of stuff on that kind of scale as they come into Jerusalem? It must have been the most electric and... um, exciting atmosphere to be a part of. Here was the man coming into Jerusalem, the anointed Messiah, the man of God, you know, the the king of the Jews, as it were, who was coming, as they thought, to save the people, to sort out all their social and political issues and to make the rest of their circumstances right. Here was the man with power who'd been making good things happen and here was the man with power who was coming into Jerusalem to make good things happen. Power to change their experience of life. Power to change their circumstances. Power to change their futures. That's what they were cheering. As Jesus came into Jerusalem, that's what they were cheering. They were cheering a man who was coming in to change their circumstances, or so they thought. A man who was going to bring the kingdom to Jerusalem. Who wouldn't be excited? Who wouldn't be excited to welcome such an incredible celebrity to town? Who wouldn't be excited about what they thought they were going to go on to see? No wonder there is so much jubilation. But within 24 hours, so that was Sunday, Jesus visits the temple on Sunday evening, and within 24 hours, all the cheering has stopped. No more excitement, because things didn't pan out as they were expecting. Within 24 hours, things had begun to change. As he began to remind them what life as a follower of his was really like. So he began to speak about being a servant if you want to be great. He began to speak about the world hating some of the people that followed him. He began to speak about family members turning against each other if there were people who followed him in those families. He began to speak about the challenges and the difficulties of being a disciple and some of the opposition that that might invite. He began to speak about the trouble that some of his followers would face in the world. He began to speak about the challenges of standing firm with a really passionate heart when most of the world wasn't interested in him. He was speaking truth. Truth that wasn't always very comfortable. That life with him might not quite look like what they were expecting. And, as far as I can see, and somebody might need to put me right on this, from the point at which Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't do any more miracles. The miracles stopped. As far as I can see, the only miracle that he did, having arrived in Jerusalem to the 
fanfare and the excitement was when um, one of his followers chopped off the ear of um, one of the, the soldiers when they came to arrest him on Thursday evening. And Jesus said, no, we're not doing that. And he healed the guy's ear. That's the only miracle I can find after the Palm Sunday entrance. The people stopped seeing the miracles. They stopped seeing the stuff that was the visible, tangible demonstration of the love and goodness of God. So instead of saying miracles, Jesus is saying is lots of Jesus is saying lots of things that they're not terribly comfortable with. And his power seems to be less evident in that period of time. And to cap it all, let's face it, what kind of superhero with powers to do whatever they like doesn't save themselves at the end of the story? I mean, Jesus obviously hadn't seen the Hollywood blockbusters. The stories don't end like that, do they? I find it incredibly disappointing on the rare occasion where the good guy actually isn't victorious at the end of the film. Jesus could have saved himself, but he doesn't. The cheering fades. He's not quite who they thought he was. He wasn't quite playing the part that they'd written for him. It wasn't panning out as they expected. It looked like all the stuff that he'd promised and all that they'd hoped for and all that they'd begun to expect wasn't going to happen. So he ends up on a cross, enduring the torture and the shame of a horrific death. And no one is cheering. Now let's just remind ourselves for a moment. Jesus didn't have to die. I know the circumstances as they're written look like it was out of God's control. But Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus chose to die. He chose to die an excruciating, humiliating death. It's really good. A little verse hidden in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, says this. This is Jesus talking to his disciples um, just before he died. Don't you, just before he was arrested. Don't you realize, guys, that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Really important that we remember that Jesus chose to die like this. He didn't have to, he chose to. And as he hangs on the cross on Good Friday, five days later, he's actually demonstrating the incredible depth and breadth of the Father's love for us, more than at any other point in his life, more than at the point of any of his greatest miracles, which were of supreme blessing to a leper who'd been isolated, or a mother who'd lost her son, or sisters who'd lost their dead brother. As he died on the cross, he demonstrated the breadth and the depth of his love more than at any other point in his life by miles. He chose the suffering. He chose the suffering to deal with the disease of the human condition, our disease called selfishness that keeps us alienated from God. He chose to deal with it because he wanted us, he wants us as brothers and sisters in his family. The Father wants you, wanted you before you were born, before you, you know, before you walked on this earth, he wanted you as a child in his family. But in order for the disease of sin to be dealt with, Jesus had to die, and he dealt with its power and its poison 
on the cross in that moment. And you know, we can look at the cross in different ways. We can look at the cross and we can, we can see it in all its horror. And if you haven't seen The Passion, you know, I would really encourage you to come and watch it. As David said, it is a devastating film in some respects, but it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful. You can close your eyes at some of the you know, more graphic parts of it, but it's a very powerful film and I would totally recommend that you come and watch it. But we can look at the cross in different ways. We can look at the cross and we can, we can see its, 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 its horror and the torturous death of Jesus. And we can, be, you know, we, can, we can be impressed by the size of our sin. We can be impressed by the magnitude of the problem of sin because he needed to die in that way. I prefer to look at it in a different way and to be impressed by the magnitude of God's heart for us. The magnitude of his love for you and me that he would do what he did. I choose to be impressed by what the cross says to me you know, about the heart of God for his world, about the heart of God for his children who are alienated from him. But Jesus is dying. He's demonstrating this incredible demonstration of the Father's love. And no one is cheering. No one is cheering. The crowds have gone they're not there. And it's not because the crowd was distraught at what was happening to their hero. It's not that they're devastated. The crowd's been dispersed. The crowd's disappointed. The crowd's disillusioned. And the crowd has deserted him. And I think when I read this passage, you know, it raises a number of questions. But the question, sort of, I've asked myself again, I asked myself uh, from reading, and I you know, want to ask us this evening is, What is it that makes us cheer? What is it that makes us express? Cheering is to externally express praise, delight, gratitude, satisfaction. What is it that makes us express our gratitude and our praise to God? What is it that makes us cheer? Do we cheer? Him. Do we praise him externally? Not, I don't mean when we're in, in church on a Sunday and Josh is leading us and we're invited to stand and that's what we're all doing in the room at that moment. But what is it in our lives that makes us cheer? When do we express? How do we express our gratitude, our praise, our devotion, our satisfaction, as it were, to God for who he is? I don't know about you, but I love to see God's power at work. I love to see answers to prayer. I love to see breakthroughs. I love to see... You know, God doing things that only God can do, setting people free, speaking powerfully to us, you know, changing the direction of a scenario. And it's always so fantastic when God does that and we hear testimonies and they're really important because God demonstrates his goodness by the things that he does. They're the visible, tangible signs that keep us connected, as it were, to his goodness. And it's so easy, I think, to be thankful on those occasions when there's something tangible to hold on to or to see or to present or to write you know, in our journals or to share as a testimony. Those should be the moments. You know, there's, there's almost no excuse for us not expressing our gratitude and our thanks and our praise in those moments. And that's what's happening on Palm Sunday here. That's what the crowd is expressing. The sun was shining, all was well with the world, and here is Jesus, the hero of the hour. But I wonder what happens to our cheering when life is tricky, when life isn't quite panning out the way we want it to, and we're praying and we're seeking God or, and we're asking him to intervene, and it doesn't appear 
that much is happening. Maybe nothing is happening as far as we can see. What happens to our cheering when we're experiencing pain and difficulty and trouble and the tricky stuff of life that comes our way so frequently when we're not seeing the breakthrough that we're longing for? And maybe it looks a bit like during that week leading up to the cross that Jesus isn't actually doing what what we thought he had promised he was going to do. What happens to the volume, as it were, on our cheering in those circumstances? Does it go down? Do we switch it off? Or does it stay the same? Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. It's a verse that many of you will be familiar with. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you and me in Christ Jesus. And I think we can sometimes get really hung up on what's God's will for me? What's God's purpose for my life? And of course, he's got all kinds of different purposes for each of us that look different in different ways. But here's a really basic one for all of us. This is God's will for us. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is like 101. We can start here. Even if we don't know what our sort of broader purpose or calling is in the particular season that we're in. Paul's saying, pray continually, cheer continually. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I want to go, what? What, Lord? When I lose my job, or when my body's not doing what it's meant to, or when a relationship isn't working out, or when my finances look like they're not going to work this month, or when I'm still waiting for the answer to prayer that I've been praying for years and years and years. Well, even then, Cheer continually, Lord, even then. But he's saying, yes, this is my will for you. This is my will for you. Rejoice always, pray continually, and cheer in all circumstances. And just in case we are in any doubt, Paul is on our side here. God is on our side. God is for us. And when God tells us to do something, grace... His power, his strength at work in us by the Spirit is what enables us to do what he invites us to do. So he's not saying this is some kind of ironic joke. He's saying this because this is a top tip that we need for life. This is a top tip that we need for walking through all those different circumstances. It's a top tip because cheering keeps us connected to the goodness of God. And I don't know about you, but there are all kinds of circumstances that I journey through in my life that actually conspire to hide God's goodness from me. All kinds of circumstances that when I'm in the middle of them, it's like I find it really hard to trust that God is still good and he's still with me and he's still for me. Some of you will know that uh, Tim and I had a sabbatical um, starting in middle of June last year. We were on our knees, emotionally, spiritually, physically, at the end of probably the most difficult, challenging 18 months of our lives. And there was this date in our diary, I can't even remember what it was, but it was about June the 19th, and it was, you know, we weren't actually ticking off the days, but it was, you know, near as good as. And uh, couldn't wait to get to that Monday, the first day of the first week 
of our sabbatical. We had a family holiday planned for the Thursday. We went to Croatia for three and a half weeks with the family, really excited about the prospect of that, and then some downtime and stuff like that during the rest of um, our period of time off. I had a doctor's appointment on the Wednesday, the day before we were due to fly out to Croatia on the Thursday. And I went to my appointment to discover that um, I had a cancerous lump in my left breast. Not the kind of news that I was expecting or wanting on day three of a sabbatical that had been long awaited and long anticipated. And um, like I said, emotionally, spiritually, physically, I was on my knees and all I could think of was, Lord, I don't know how I will survive to have something like this overshadowing our four-month time off. Is that what this is for? So decided not to postpone the holiday, got on an aeroplane with the family the next day, and um, a couple of days later, I was sitting with the Lord, had my Bible out, and uh, I said to the Lord, well, how am I going to cope with this? You know, how do I get through this? I don't want this to overshadow uh, you know, my, our time off, our, t- our sabbatical. I know we, you want to do some restorative work in us. How am I going to cope with this? And... Uh, a friend had sort of messaged me and said, why don't you read Psalm 91? And I, I turned to Psalm 91 in that particular moment that I was having with the Lord. And the first verse of Psalm 91 says this. I always get it the wrong way around, so I wrote it down. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And God was saying to me, you'll find rest in this season of your life while you go through this if you come and find you will find rest if you come and live in my shadow. Live in my shadow, and these circumstances won't overshadow you. So I said to the Lord, well, how do I do that? What does that look like? You know, I can barely string two words together in my prayer times because I'm so tired, I'm so over-emotional. What does that look like? And God said to me, praise me, and then just sit in silence before me. And I thought, well, I can do that. So each day, I decided to you know, do it by my, do my watch to make sure I was praising him enough and spending enough time in silence. And each day, I spent 15 minutes just praising him and thanking him for every single thing I could think of. And then I just sat in his presence for a period of time in silence. And sometimes he spoke to me and said some really significant things to me, and other times he said absolutely nothing at all. And all I can say is, I don't know how it happened, but through that period of time, I lived in his peace. Sometimes I had to remember that I had this thing, and I ended up having, obviously, an operation and some treatment. But I lived in the shadow of the Most High. And it was God who overshadowed me. It was God's presence that shaped that period of time in my life. But I know that choosing to praise him in those circumstances was connected. I know it was significant. And, you know, let's just acknowledge here that Paul isn't suggesting that this is going to be easy, choosing to cheer in all circumstances. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. You know, we need the Holy Spirit to live the way that Jesus has called us and invited to live. If it was easy, we wouldn't need him. So really worth, you know, acknowledging that. You know, Jesus isn't saying, it's going to be easy, everything I ask you to do. And I think this is one of the most challenging things, what cheering Cheering when my body isn't working. How does that work, Lord? But it's cheering that 
keep us connected to the goodness of God. There are times when God doesn't work in the way that we think he's going to or the way that we'd hoped he would. But do you know what? Just as in this passage, Jesus is always working. God was working when the crowds lost sight of who he was and what he'd come to do. But that didn't stop him from working. That didn't stop him from contending for the greatest, most liberating, you know, amazing blessing that humankind could ever experience, the gift of life and eternity with him. They didn't spot it. I mean, how could you not spot that except that we didn't? And when it doesn't look like God is working in your life and you're wondering what on earth is going on and you're not seeing what you want to see, God is still working. He's still working. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. He's always at work for the good of those who love him. And we might not understand it and we might not you know, know what's going on and we might not be connected. But Paul says, in all circumstances, cheer. Cheer. Because that's how you're going to be, remain connected to the presence and the goodness of God. Find something. You don't have to be thankful for what... I didn't have to be thankful that I had a cancerous lump. I just had to find things to be thankful for. And actually, when you start looking at, for the goodness of God in your life, you can find tons of stuff. You know, we have so much to be grateful for. Paul says, in going through what you're going through, find stuff to thank God for and express it. Don't be a thank- you can't be a thankful person on the inside without it coming out of your mouth. The psalmist talks about praise being on our lips. There's grati- our gratitude and our praise, cheering is about expression. And that's about in your personal life, at your desk, you know, on a Monday morning, when you're in your car, when you're running, when you're walking your dog, when you're in the supermarket. Is gratitude, is praise, is cheering on your lips. Jesus says something really interesting in this passage. He says, when the Pharisees tell him to silence his uh, disciples from cheering him, he says, if I I silence them, the rocks will cry out. And that passage, that that verse, is often kind of misassumed to be meaning, well, if the disciples and the crowds aren't cheering Jesus, well, the rocks will cheer Jesus. That's how a lot of people interpret it. I did a little bit of research on this because I found it a really interesting phrase. And actually, every time that the the, the phrase is used, that the ground will cry out, or the rocks will cry out, or the stones will cry out in the Bible, it is used in terms of crying out about an injustice. So when um, when Abel's blood, Cain, his brother, kills him, and God says, the ground cries out about the injustice of Abel's death. In the book of Joshua... God says that the stones will cry, the, the stones on the ground witnessed the covenant between God and his people. And if the people didn't fulfill the covenant, the stones would cry out about the injustice of having witnessed promises made and then not fulfilled by the people. And in the book of Habakkuk, uh, the same phrase is used about the stones of a wall crying out against those who had, in the presence of that wall, made iniquitous plans to deceive and um, uh, deceive people out of money. And so the chances are what Jesus is really saying is that if, if, if the crowds aren't praising me after everything I've already done, 
The stones will cry out in injustice because he is worthy and he is deserving of our praise. Jesus deserves our praise for everything that he has done. For everything that he has done. Paul says, thank him in all circumstances. Cheer. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we can see the unraveling of the story. We can see what God was doing. You know, we can see how it all fitted together. We could see what they can't see and what the crowds didn't see. The sacrificial path that Jesus chose for their good. But there are all kinds of scenarios in which we can't always see what he's doing. And there will be some of us in here for whom that is the case. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know where he is. You know, you're wondering actually whether he's at work in your life at all, whether he's for you and whether he is really, really good. God's promised that he'll never leave us. He's promised that he will never forsake us. Romans says that he will give us everything we need because he didn't not give himself at the cross. He's promised to be our ever-present help in trouble. He's promised to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, to give us what we need to provide us. But there are times where his presence seems distant. There are times where we, feel it very, we find it very hard to remain connected to the confidence that he's good and that he is for us and on our side. And actually one of the reasons we begin to feel that disconnection and one of the reasons our confidence begins to diminish is precisely because we stop cheering. It's cheering that keeps us connected to the goodness and the presence of God. And I don't know about you, but I need to keep growing in this. I need to keep growing in this. This is something that, you know, God, a, a sort of theme, a message that God brings me back to over and over again because I think it's not natural. It's not a natural thing to cheer God, particularly when the chips are down. But when we do, when we press in, when we offer him a sacrifice of praise, the Bible talks about praise sometimes being a sacrifice. Well, when is praise a sacrifice? When it's hard, when we don't feel like it. When logically it doesn't look like we should be praising. That's when praise is a sacrifice and we're invited to give him a sacrifice of praise at times. And it's in those moments, it's only in those moments when it's really difficult that we have that opportunity. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be somebody whom the stones cry out against because actually I had those moments, I had those opportunities to praise him when it was hard, to cheer him when it was hard. And I just didn't take the opportunity. So we're going to pray. We're going to stand. I'm going to invite you to stand. For those of you that are, are visitors here or joining us for the first time, we, we like to end our times together um, in a slightly fluid way. We like to offer, offer an opportunity for prayer for those of us that just know that we need um, a brother or a sister to contend alongside us for something that we're contending with. But this evening, I want us to do that in the context of cheering. I've talked about cheering, and um, I think it would be good for us to return, actually, to praise. So we're kind of going to do both of those things at the same time. 
the band are going to lead us. We're going to return to um, worship. But I want to invite any of us that are here this evening, if you're here and um, you need healing, I want to encourage you to come down to um, the front down here, I think, on my left-hand side where there are people who um, we love to pray for each other in this family. So if you're here and you need prayer for healing, if you're here and actually you're seeking God's direction in your life and you'd love to hear from the Lord, again, I want to, I want to encourage you to come down to the front. If there's, if there's particular business that you know that you need to do with God, maybe there's something you need to set right with him, maybe there's, a, there's something that you want to kind of offer him by way of sacrifice um, this evening, or if you know that you know, you just, you're longing for his touch in a particular kind of way, please come down to the front and we'd love to pray for you. But as we, as we sing and as we offer him our expression again of praise and gratitude for who he is as much as what he's done, I, I do believe that for, for one or two of us in here this evening, actually pressing in to this choice to cheer when you don't feel like cheering because of what's going on in your life. I believe that for one or two of you here, if you can you know, allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to press in, to cheer your God, you are going to experience some kind of breakthrough this evening. Maybe it feels like God has been really, really distant and you found it really hard to connect with him. I believe that, you know, as, as we press in, as we push in, particularly where that praise is a sacrifice, God is going to meet you in a powerful way. Jesus. So we'd love to pray for a, a, a bunch of you over here. If there's some circumstances that you're struggling to give thanks to God in and through. We'd love to just stand with you, pray for you, pray with you. I also sense there's something of a, of a commissioning. If you want to be recommissioned again to, this evening, just something around that if, if you gave your life to love them, so will I. If there's, if there's, if there's a call of dying in certain areas, whether, whether it's of your own pride or in small areas, there's just a call something of a commissioning would love for you to come forward and just say do you know what? i want to recommit my life to being 